Hello, my name is Samuel George London and welcome to Comics for the Apocalypse. On today's episode, I speak to comic book writer, editor and absolute legend, Simon Furman, about what comics he would take into the apocalypse. But before we get into it, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Comic Scene. Comic Scene is an award-winning magazine that's available digitally and in print in selected comic shops and newsagents in the UK, Ireland, Australia, Canada and the good old USA. With a Harley Quinn front cover, issue 12 is available in shops and online right now. Inside, you'll find a beginner's guide to Harley's history, a look back at classic 70s UK comics, an interview with Pat Mills about the spring launch of Action 2020, and so much more. If that tickles your fancy, digital and print subscriptions are available from £2.50 at getmycomics.com forward slash comic scene, or you can simply order it from any newsagent in the UK or Ireland. Also, be sure to check out their website, comicscene.org, for more news, details and other fun stuff. Now, without further ado, on with the show. Hello, Simon Furman. How's it going? Very well, thanks. Happy to be on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, my absolute pleasure, Simon. It was it was great to hear from you on Twitter that you'd agree to uh, to come on the show because uh, you, you've appeared in several people's lists um, of, of comics for the apocalypse. So it's really appreciated. Thanks. Well, thanks for having thanks for having me on. So yeah. Happy to uh, jump into the apocalypse. <laughs> Too right. Um, and for anybody that hasn't come across you um, just yet, and, and I doubt there's very many, uh, but uh, what do you do in the world of comics? Well, I've been a writer and creator and editor for about 40 years now. I've worked for Marvel UK and IPC and Titan Publishing. Uh, and as a creator, I've written Transformers uh, Alpha Flight, uh, What If, a whole other bunch of other stuff for Marvel, and things like Death's Head and Dragon's Claws, which amazingly are still sort of around and being reprinted 30-something years later. And yeah, you know, just a bunch of other stuff. I'm currently working, I'm writing The Vigilant for Rebellion and Transformers 84 for IDW. And I edit Transformers The Definitive G1 Collection, which is a hundred volume collection of all the Transformers comic strips so far and I've dabbled a bit in TV animation computer games I write for Earth Wars uh, a computer game based on Transformers so yeah just a you know generally a lot of writing over these uh, 35 40 years so as I say, um, there'd be very few people in the in the comics community that wouldn't know who you are with that that exceedingly uh, amazing career that you've had um, over, over the past forty years, as you say. Um, and uh, people have actually got uh, an opportunity um, to to meet you in person at a signing at Forbidden Planet in the next week or so. That's right. Yeah, they've just bought out a, a sort of bumper sized edition of all the Death's Head material, including, well, it's, it's, it's Marvel US who produced it, and it includes all the UK-produced stuff and the various guest appearances from the US. 
So it's really nice. And we've managed to get a, a signing organised in Forbidden Planet London on the 29th of February, a Saturday. And it's going to be myself, Jeff Senior, Brian Hitch, John Higgins, Lee Sullivan and Simon Williams, all of whom are, you know, featured in that collection. And, you know, it's good. It's it's great for Jeff and me because we've got our creator own title to the death out at the moment. And then that happily coincides with uh, the release of the final issue, issue 10. So we'll have a pre-release of that at the signing as well. Oh, fantastic. Um, and for anybody that isn't able to make the signing in, in person, uh, where can they find you online? Well, they can find me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm pretty active on both. And uh, just generally, you know, sort of, I mean, I'm I'm sort of around and about a lot of the the Transformers news groups and and yeah you know I mean generally I'm I'm sort of around if people want to find me <laughs> fantastic and, you know, and if you want to check out to the death uh we have dedicated Twitter and Facebook accounts for to the death and uh there's a website as well which is www.2-the-death.com fantastic and those links are in the show notes as well so people can just click through right there and um, if they want to check it out whilst uh whilst we head into the apocalypse um and uh with that in mind i do unfortunately have some bad news for you simon mm-hmm. and, and and that is is that there's there's been a robot takeover um a, a super an artificially intelligent uh computer is has taken over a load of robots and decided to to rise up against humanity um so my question for you is what is your action plan for survival well my first step i think would be to kind of wave my giant robot comic credentials at them oh absolutely <laughs> see if we can't get some kind of rapport going you know, absolutely so, if, so show, show your body of work and exactly, kind of like, so you know, i i understand where you're coming from there. <laughs> yeah absolutely and then get get them on your side yeah and you know if that doesn't work well i suppose i'll just have to bring in my orbital attack ship that i keep hovering like a vast predatory bird in the upper atmosphere for situations just like this (laughs) fantastic um and and before that that happens um the the artificially intelligent uh robot supercomputer wanted to interview you um, about your about your uh, comic readings, um, and uh, the first question that this supercomputer asks is, "What is the first comic you remember enjoying?" Well, I mean, I I kind of started reading as most kids did here in the UK, the the what you, I suppose what you call the funny comics, you know, the the Beano, the Dandy, Wizard and Chips, Beezer, Buster. You know, there were a whole slew of them produced by. IPC and DC Thompson. So, you know, I mean, that was my first introduction to comics because I think those were the comics that your parents were happy to buy you. But once I got to age seven, eight, I I, I gravitated much more to the, the quote-unquote boys' adventure comics that IPC and DC Thompson published. So the first one I particularly remember you know, making an impact on me and absolutely having to have it every week was a comic called Smash, which, as always, was a collection of 
six or seven different serials, some some funny, some football, some war, World War Two, you know, some action adventure. And I definitely lean towards that action adventure ones that had more of a superhero aspect to them. So something like Robot Archie or The Spider or The Steel Claw, those kind of strips I absolutely loved. And I think that's where the whole love of comics really came from, those strips. Fantastic. And uh, at that time, were, were you starting to write stories or were you just kind of enjoying the stories as as they were? No, I, I did. I, you know, I was very... You know, I was a big reader anyway, so it wasn't just comics, it was books, I loved films. Mm. And, you know, so I think the story thing was there right from the start. And I can remember filling old school exercise books full of prose stories with every other page was a page illustration, really bad illustration. But, you know, that's why I was a writer, I think, in late <laughs> my later career. But... You know, no, absolutely. I had definitely a sort of, I guess, what teachers would have called an overactive imagination. But, you know, it served me well in the long term. Absolutely. Um, and, and when did your big first break come in to, for, for your comic writing? Well, I, I, you know, like most kids, I suppose, I, I did that thing of growing out of comics and mm. then slightly rediscovering them as, as, as an older teenager or I might well have been 18 by that time and just rediscovering the passion for them and at the same time more or less I got a job with IPC magazines who had a comics division and you know I wasn't in the comics division I was in they had they published so much they had a designated editorial department for competitions so everything from win a car to you know, win a a year's subscription to a comic book, you know, we had to channel all those and liaise with the editors. So it was a great introduction for me both to, you know, journalism, quote unquote, and getting the training for that and meeting all the editors of the comics. Like, you know, at the time IPC was publishing 2000 AD, Eagle, Battle, you know, I mean, there was an amazing roster of comics and there I was meeting all with all the editors and the senior editors. And, you know, gradually, I think I just got very back into comics in a big way during that time and then was fortunate enough to more or less be headhunted by those senior editors over in the main IPC building at King's Reach Tower and asked to come on board for a new kids' horror comic called Scream, where I would be the assistant editor. And really, that was where the writing career started as well. Fantastic. And then you've been uh, working very hard ever since. Yeah, really. I mean, you know, comics is a mixture of luck and talent, and I would say that luck plays a bigger part sometimes than the talent side of it. And I've been remarkably lucky in my career, which could have floundered at several points. You know, the first, I guess, instance of luck was that my editor on screen was um, a man called Ian Rimmer. 
and Ian was just an amazing guy and we were both friends and co-workers and we we worked really well together on Scream and I think we both enjoyed the process of working together creatively on that and I was lucky enough that when Scream finished well I was lucky first that Ian let me loose on scripts you know I generally just jumped in if we were behind on schedule if a writer hadn't delivered if there was another emergency like you know very early on there was a strip called terror of the cats in the issue you know i mean it was a strange beast anyway of a story but very quickly the management decided they didn't like it uh and you know could we finish it off really quickly so ian just handed it over to me and said wrap this up in four four page stories and that was really my first kind of comics writing work and and Ian kept feeding me little bits and pieces as we went along through Scream. And then I suppose lucky break number two was when uh, when Scream folded after 15 issues and we were all more or less out of a job, he moved over to Marvel UK and a little later contacted me, A, about potentially writing for Transformers as a freelancer and then coming to work for Marvel UK as his assistant editor on Captain Britain Monthly. So, you know, lots of lucky breaks and, you know, those lucky breaks have, have continued throughout my career, really, you know, just when sometimes the work seems to fade away, it suddenly comes roaring back and that's because you've made a good contact or you're well known as, as I am for Transformers. You know, so lots of lucky breaks over my career, really. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so uh, the next question that comes up uh, from our super, supercomputer is, uh, what is the funniest or the comic that made you laugh out loud the most? Um, I, I suppose, you know, I loved the comics I read as a kid. I'm sure they amused, you know, the Beano and all those ones I used to love. So all those. But I think later on, it's more, you know, I loved Viz, you know, comic, which really lampooned all those sort of classic humour comics of the uh, that I grew up on. I thought that was an amazingly funny comic. You know, I loved things like Alan Moore's DR and Quinch. You know, Alan Moore's a name that's going to crop up a lot in this, but... He is one of those writers that very rarely seems to put a foot wrong and always features in my top five or ten, you know, kind of greatest, you know, best comics of 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 all my career of that, you know, that I've read. So, you know, I'm, I'm very fond of Dr. and Quinch. You know, I loved things like Marvel's Not Brandish. So, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I I kind of I'm not a big humor comics guy i guess i think my career has gone like i say more into the action adventure style but you know do i love a good funny comic absolutely <laughs> too right um and uh yeah you've got you've got a fair few uh choices that you sent through to me there um which uh always give most people a a, a good old laugh um now uh the the next question uh that comes up from the uh the super computer is uh, what is the saddest or most upsetting comic that you've read? You know, that's, that's a tough one, I suppose. I think there are, you know, there are comics that 
have really sort of kind of gut punched me, you know, when I've read them mm-hmm. and leave an impact. Sad, I don't know. I, have I ever sort of felt that about a comic book? You know, I, strangely, the thing that used to sadden me most was when comic books would end. You know, sometimes some your, you know, British comics had a habit of suddenly being merged into other comics. And so a strip you were following might just disappear suddenly or come to a real abrupt end. You know, I hated things that just never finished, you know, and in my career there have been odd things of story where I've never really got the chance to finish them off properly, which it always saddens me, I guess. But no, you know, I mean, I think, you know, the, it's more the sort of the more visceral response I get, like to something like Miller's Daredevil, where, you know, it really was a revelation just in both story and art that superhero comics, which I love and I grew up on once I moved on from the more British comics, you know, I, I moved into Marvel comics like Spider-Man and really never looked back. But something like Miller's Daredevil and his Batman the Killing Joke or Alan Moore's Miracle Man, uh, you know, I think there was a a really nice, what I hadn't really experienced before is that comics could really just kick you in the guts in a good way. And, mm. you know, you would get that real response to them. I'd always viewed comics as slightly, well, they generally they have happy endings. They have you know, everything comes out well in the end. But some of those comics made me, you know, they pushed the boundaries of of it into a more realistic or less happy ending themed version. And I think that fed into my own writing that I never wanted it to just be as neat and pat as that. And that, you know, there was a cost to these things, even if you were dealing with giant toy robots, you know, or robots, toys of giant robots you know i wanted the stories i wrote to have an impact on people and i think it was those reading those comics that you know set me up for that really well that's fantastic and it's it is it's really refreshing i guess to i mean it's it's good and bad isn't it when you get a gut punch from a comic because obviously you kind of feel you know uneasy about it um but at the same time it kind of makes you think that you know comics can have a real impact upon readers and and as a writer you can kind of think okay I want to inject that into my comics yeah I mean absolutely I mean I I actually said the wrong Batman because I mean Miller is uh, Dark Knight Returns but the other one that was Batman the Killing Joke which I always remember seeing and the the bit where Barbara Gordon is is shot by the joke Mm. you know was still just one of those moments where you just think oh, wow, that happens in a comic. And, you know, so, yeah, those things really fed into my own work of just constantly, you know, trying to pull the rug out from under the reader just when they think they're safe in their expectations to twist it in a in a way they didn't see coming and isn't always what they hoped would happen. Absolutely. Um, Fantastic. Uh, And uh, going along those lines of kind of unexpected and and surprise, uh, the next question that comes up is what is the scariest or most horrifying comic that you've read? Yeah, you know, again, I'm fairly inured to horror, especially in comics. I mean, I love, you know, there's horror comics I absolutely love. 
you know, I love both iterations of Swamp Thing, you know, both the original, you know, Bernie Wrights and Len Wein Swamp Thing and then Alan Moore's take on it and Jamie Delano's Hellblazer. These are great, great horror comics. And, you know, I love Tomb of Dracula and other comics that uh, Marvel put out. But, you know, I was kind of weaned from a, a fairly young age on Hammer horror films and other horror films. So I think by the time it got to horror in comics, I was I was fairly resilient to that. So, you know, again, it's something I can really appreciate. But, you know, I, I don't really... I, I can't remember ever picking up a comic and, and sort of needing to keep the lights on, as it were. <laughs> Fantastic. Very, very thick skin. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, now we get on to uh, one of my uh, favourite questions, and that is, what is your favourite cover? Yeah, covers. I mean, I, I think covers are an art form all of themselves, you know, mm. and I, you know, I'm, I'm really happy to just look at books of cover art because i think the art of the cover is is fascinating and when you know i've worked as an editor i really enjoyed the process of putting together the best possible cover for the issue and you know even to the point where i used to again very badly sketch out covers for the artists and send them off to the likes of lee sullivan and will simpson and and john higgins and many others and, you know, what they thought of them, I don't know. But, you know, I think my favourite one was when I must I must have sent a cover sketch to Dave Gibbons for the cover he did for a Transformers issue. And, you know, I'm sure he chuckled at that one. But I do think <laughs> covers are hugely important. And there's some covers that have always made a big impact on me. You know, I was a big Spider-Man fan. And I think the covers, you know, that I'd pick out uh, come from that early run of spider-man comics you know amazing spider-man issue 50 with peter parker walking away turning his back on spider-man amazing cover you know or issue 39 with him unmasked by the green goblin you know there were some amazing ones and i kept one of my earliest spider-man issues the american spider-man issues that i had when I sold off all my single issues, because I'd more or less just moved into masterworks and trades of everything. Mm. But I kept issue eight of Amazing Spider-Man, which is the earliest one I owned. And, you know, it's a great cover. It's, you know, for a start, it, it advertises itself as a special tribute to teenagers issue. And, you know, it's got Spidey versus the Living Brain, Peter Parker boxing with Flash Thompson, and, and, you know, there's a human torch battle as well, all on one cover. And I think I love those. Most of all, I think I love those multi-scene ones where you get a taster of all the different things that are happening in the issue. And again, the uh, the sort of the first run of Fantastic Four, you know, certainly up to issue 100 or whatever, used to do that really well. They used to have you know, this one has it all and shall earth survive. And, and just generally the cover was dotted with stuff you wanted to look inside and see. So I think, you know, I, I think the cover is so, so important with a comic and, and so, yeah, you know, I just absolutely love them. If I, so if I had to pick one, it would probably be amazing Spider-Man 50, but 
there's an issue of Fantastic Four. It's in the 70s or 80s, maybe. And it has my favourite cover line on it of all time. You know, I think cover line's also really important. And mm. there's some somewhat of a lost thing on covers. But this cover line, and this is how it read, was... What profiteth a man to flee his fate? Question mark. For he shall surely find worlds within worlds. And I just thought, oh, wow, it's a whole book on a cover. Mm. Do I want to read and see what's going on in this. I think the Silver Surfer's on the cover. You know, so absolutely, I love that kind of the the art of the cover, really. And there's many, many I could pick, but that's a few of the ones I like. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a fantastic array of uh, of covers. But but just going back to that uh, that cover line that you that you uh, just quoted there. I mean, isn't it amazing that people still put down comics, but you know, as as though they're not kind of great works of of literature. But then you've got a line like that on the front, kind of you know that is you know that's a that's a great line and kind of clearly shows that look, these aren't just, you know, airy-fairy things. They're trying to, you know, educate readers. Yeah, and, you know, generally, I, you know, I, the reason I loved Stan Lee's comics, his writing, was that he did that thing of never once writing down. He would just litter it with, you know, a lot of the myth and legend he knew. He, he His language was always somewhat overblown and, you know, it always had me reaching for the dictionary to see what that word meant or that, or he'd have dialects or, you know, you know, his, his stuff is so rich, the dialogue and the language he used. And again, that sort of migrated into my own writing of, of never, ever writing down, of just writing, you know, allowing you know assuming people will have the intelligence to understand it or or want to find out what if i'm going to use a a big word in there somewhere that they'll go and look it up so you know i i think that that stan lee thing of of using some might say somewhat overblown language was really inspirational for me yeah absolutely i i agree because yeah, I've I've written a few all ages comics myself, and um, I've I've kind of been been adamant that when particular people are speaking, whether it kind of be an older person or a teacher or something, that they'll tend to use long words. And even though you know the child that's reading might not necessarily know what that word is, they'd be you know curious enough to either ask their parents or look it up in a dictionary or something like that. And then that'll hopefully kind of lead them onto, onto increasing their vocabulary, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, definitely. And generally the feedback I've had, you know, latterly from meeting Transformers fans who were reading my stuff as kids mm. and, you know, now as adults, them, you know, saying that, that, that was, you know, they loved that these were, were sort of rich in language and and you know they weren't you know simplistic in story or the underlying themes and you know we really you know luckily we were allowed just to to do the kind of stories that we would want to read ourselves even in a quote-unquote toy kids comic we just you know we never thought of them that way we just thought well it's got to fire us as creators first so that sort of fed into the 
the whole ethos of my writing, really. Fantastic. Uh, now we come on to one of the most interesting questions, and that is, uh, what is the most meaningful comic to you? Yeah, I think, you know, I think I love, you know, again, the, I'm coming back to the Alan Moore thing here. He writes really great superhero comics that, you know, transcend the medium a great deal. So, you know, I have one of the ones I often reach for and reread is is his whole Marvel Man slash Miracle Man, whatever you want to call it, run. And that's the one where I just kind of never tire of. Same for his Captain Britain, really. But, you know, I think, you know, the one that I always remember, you know, it was published as a single issue, uh, issue 15 of Miracle Man. And it's the it's the big fight between Miracle Man and Kid Miracle Man that's sort of been building up to for a while. And it's the most kind of visceral, you know, hopeless for the hero, downright shocking battle I'd ever read, I think. And it really kind of seared itself into my brain, that issue. You know, the whole of book three really is a very adult read for something that's essentially, you know, a guy in, in a sort of in tights fighting other sort of strong or alien characters. But it really did push the, to me the whole boundaries of what a superhero comic could be. And, you know, so often, you know, I'll just happily pick that up again and reread, especially that fight. It's got some of the most amazing structure and dialogue and and internal narrative of of any sort of comic I think I've read read, uh, read before. So, you know, that is, is another one that, you know, I find, you know, other people's writing inspirational and I definitely find that with Alan Moore time and time again. Fantastic. And sorry, what, how old were you when you, when you first read that? I mean, I suppose, I mean, I wasn't young. I was, I must've been when Miracle Man was coming out in my twenties, you know, I right, really right. you know, it was it was still though a kind of surprise to me i think just how mm. how grown up comics had got you know by you know i mean comics suddenly sort of from the early to mid 80s onwards just changed really you know and that mm. was the time of watchmen and dark knight returns but before that there was V for Vendetta and Marvel Man, Miracle Man. And and I think it was such a potent time to be both reading comics and just starting out as a creator, the 80s, because that really was where comics grew up and started just changing what could be done in a comic, I think. Absolutely. I was I was just trying to figure out where where you were in your your career at that point. Like had you had you started writing Scream or uh, were being yeah, involved with Scream, sorry? Or? It must have been around that time. Yeah. You know, I mean I can't off the top of my head remember when Warrior was, but Warrior mm. I have a feeling was after I had started doing some writing. It was it was around that mid eighties time that I started and things like Warrior and, you know, and, you know, I would also add 2000 AD to that mix because, again, it had that that thing we hadn't really seen before, which was a kind of anarchic edge to it. And, 
you know, a, a non-conformist way of telling comic stories. You know, Pat Mills and Kev O'Neill's Nemesis the Warlock was kind of eye-popping stuff and absolutely packed with, you know, visual detail. And I just remember at the time thinking these are, you know, comics aren't quite what I grew up with anymore, which always felt like out of an even older era than they actually were. You know, British comics used to have still have a feel of we're still in the 40s or 50s or even earlier with some of the strips. But suddenly with 2000 AD and onwards, it, it really started to note, you know, this is this is a place where you can be expressive and different and 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 break the rules. So, yeah, all of those, I'd, I'd say, were sort of founding, grounding sort of, you know, benchmarks for me as I went along. That's fantastic. Uh, now, the next question uh, that comes up is uh, what is the most underrated comic? Yeah, that, that also a tough one, you know, and I thought long and hard about this. And I think, you know, I, the one that I think I loved that, you know, maybe got passed by was a comic called Power Man and Iron Fist. You know, I was a big Marvel fan. I read pretty much everything that they were producing during the um, the sort of late 70s and into the 80s. And, um, you know, Power Man and Iron Fist was a, a great fun comic and and that's what i loved about it It had a sense of fun about it you know it wasn't your typical superhero comic for a start it had a great you know it was a buddy movie of a comic you know they were fairly mismatched and generally the the storylines were weird and wonderful and slightly wacky and and i you know i've just been rereading pretty much the whole run in the Marvel epic collections they've been doing of them. And even though, you know, it has some ups and downs and they found they find it hard to keep an art style or even an artist for long, it generally is such a fun read and I've I've really sort of enjoyed it all over again. But, you know, I don't think it's anything that made much of a ripple at the time. Yeah, because uh, originally, obviously, uh, Power Man Luke Cage was um was on his own and then he was kind of merged with iron fist yeah i mean i think it was you know, kind of the other way around that yeah i oh, mean yes it? obviously that iron fist was sort of merged into the numbering of the power man comic but you know yeah i mean and you know again i've re i've i never really read the luke cage issues before that i i kind of came in at power man and iron fist and and re again recently i've read the Luke Cage ones in the masterworks and they're a little more of their time, I guess, but, you know, still fascinating, but it was, it was when they sort of came up with the, uh, you know, who decided, I don't know, but it was a, it was a pairing that on paper didn't look anything much. And I always mm. loved the fact that they were for hire. They were heroes for hire. It wasn't yeah. just a noble calling. And sometimes they they had to get over that, you know, sort of attitude that people would give them back for not being, you know, the sort of the selfless daredevil Spider-Man mm. type heroes who did it just because that's what they do. You know, in generally, unless they weren't hired, they weren't involved in these things. 
So, you know, it was a nice, interesting, different dynamic, I thought. Yeah, completely different take, particularly at the time, you know, when you've got all the other kind of, you know, cornerstone superheroes out there, and then you've got these two that will only do it for money. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it makes a lot of sense, like, in, in reality, but... <laughs> and it, it kind of appealed to me, because I love, you know, the fiction I love more than any is is kind of detective fiction, especially classic pulp fiction you know the Raymond Chandlers and the Dashiell Hammetts and so I love that idea as a story basic startup that the office door opens somebody walks in and the case unfolds from there and that's really how most issues of Power Man and Iron Fist went that there would be a case or a person or a something walks in the door and kicks off the action from there and I always loved that idea and you know that filtered into um, the first issue of Death's Head where really he's just a guy in an office and people come in with you know jobs for him and and off he goes from there so you know it was channeling a lot of that love I had for private eyes into you know a superhero comic so you know that was another thing i loved about it fantastic uh now uh, we come on to our most difficult question and that is for you what is the best comic of all time oh, God, you know almost, again almost impossible there's so many candidates <laughs> so instead i've slightly picked a, a a short run of comics again one of the big influences on me when i was getting back into comics were the Claremont X-Men comics, you know, and especially when it was Claremont and John Byrne working together. And, you know, they were some of the, I just think the most, the best put together comics. I mean, they looked amazing, but it was, you know, Claremont at the top of his game and working with an artist who, you know, kept the action moving amazingly. And the run I'm sort of picking is, the the little run up to the Dark Phoenix saga. So it's it's kind of Uncanny X Men one three one, one three two, one three three, one three four, around there. And it's really the X Men versus the Hellfire Club. And within that you have issue one three two, which is the one where Wolverine gets knocked into through several floors of a building into a sewer that's filling up with water and is swept away and you know the whole fight in that and the whole sort of drama of the x-men being pretty much defeated by the hellfire club gene gray being seduced and turned into dark phoenix you know it was an amazing run of stories and then at the end of that you've got that kind of classic page to me where you know, we all think Wolverine's, you know, been swept away and so do the villains. And at the end, the kind of hand comes up, grabs a pipe, holds himself out of the the sort of the full sewer. And, you know, the claws come out and it's kind of now it's my turn. And I I just remember reading that and thinking, what a way to end a comic book. You know, do you do I want to go and read the next one? Damn right. So, you know, I think. <laughs> You know, it taught me a lot about, again, how to just pull readers along and to have, you know, I loved Claremont's way of 
there were always, I mean, it's always been the Marvel way, but Claremont did it a lot more, of having bubbling subplots under the main action. So, you know, you've got maybe a B story, a C story, a D story that are gradually building through in the background and getting to the point where they become the A story. And I love that. And so that 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 way, again, migrated into my comic book storytelling. You know, the power of the last page, you know, make sure that, you know, people come back for more. I think that the hook at the end is as as important as the hook of the story itself, just to pull people along. And that last page of X-Men 132, I think very much was the was the inspiration, if you like, for a final page I did in a story called Target 2006, where you've had this big fight between two characters, Galvatron and Ultra Magnus, and, you know, it ends up in a sort of massive fireball, and you think, well, surely the good guys won here. You know, that's the way the story goes, right? And then out of the flames on the final page comes Galvatron, tosses Ultra Magnus's crumpled body on the floor, mm. and he's won. And, you know, I just thought it, the the influence for that page really was, you know, some of that reading those X-Men issues back in the day. That's fantastic. And it's it, it's incredible how much, you know, comics can have an impact on on yourself as a writer and you kind of want to weave it into your own stories. Um, yeah, just the, the power of stories is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Um, now, uh, we come on to our last question in regards to comics, and that is, if you could only take one comic into the apocalypse, which would it be? I would take with me the trade paperback, so the whole lot of Watchmen. Now, that's another one. Again, we're back to Alan Moore. You know, there's a theme <laughs> here, I think. But, you know, it, it, we really, you know, Watchmen's a masterclass, I think, in storytelling. You know, that, and now, by that I mean story and art. It's almost the perfect marriage of story and art to me. Uh, and there's so much substance to every issue. So if I could have one comic, I think it would be that. I mean, in fact, you know, there's so much substance to every page, every panel. It's, it's a kind of read with capital letters. You know, there's text bits at the back that add to the, the world you're reading about. You know, I think every time I read Watchmen and I've reread it, you know, several times, I'll find something else, whether it's a just a a kind of a, a texture I didn't realise or a nuance or a, a bit of art I didn't realise connected then. You know, it really is an amazing bit of work and, you know, still rewarding when you read it now. I still get more out of it. And, you know, I still love and loved at the time when I read it that issue five is an exact mirror of itself it reaches the midpoint and then the construction Mm. is the same going out as it was going in so you know it really I mean it's called fearful symmetry and the the issue itself is symmetrical and again I marveled at you know especially with working closely with an artist so you know 
I'm assuming Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons were working very closely on Watchmen. And it's something we've we've taken on board. I, you know, I love working with an artist rather than just sending a script off. So, you know, working with Jeff Senior on To The Death, it's been a real collaboration, the whole thing, where, you know, I've kept more or less my initial storytelling to a minimum, let Jeff take that where he wants to go. And then, you know, we kind of massage the story into shape and then I might add dialogue in later where needed. So, you know, I love that collaborative feel that Watchmen has. And, you know, my preferred way of working always is to work with the artist who's evidently got a better visual sense than me. And, you know, you just end up with a much better product because of it. And, you know, I think with To The Death, you know, it's it, it's great just to let Jeff off the leash and say, well, look, you know, if it's going to be a fight, I'll give you some bullet points about what I kind of like to happen. But otherwise, stage it as you will, add in elements wherever you want. And, you know, I think it's been great for Jeff as well, because it keeps an artist more interested rather than being very prescriptive in the script, which is how full script often works, that you end up calling the shots, you know, of every blow and angle in the fight. But with To The Death, it was just like, well, we need to get from here to here via here and do it the way you want to do it. And I think it's been the better for it. Oh, absolutely um and kind of for for somebody that your career has spanned you know 40 years what what's the process of of creating comics been like from say 40 years ago to now what's what are the what are the differences in in the actual creation process well i mean strangely we we've kind of i've come more or less full circle in some ways mm-hmm. in that you know, we we start. I started writing full script. The scripts I read, you know, to to sort of get myself started. You know, I was lucky enough to have access to the 2000 AD office, and and Steve McManus was very generous with letting me look at scripts written by like the likes of John Wagner and Pat Mills, and so I was learning from the best. And you know, I used to love looking at John Wagner's dread scripts because they were pared down to the bone. You know, it was more or less dread on bike, dread scowling, dread shooting, you know, Mm -hmm. and it it taught me that you don't have to cram too much detail into every panel description, you know, trust your artist to, to visualize as much as anything. So, you know, but full script was how I started. And then, when I started working for Marvel US, I moved on to that Marvel plot style of of just more or less laying out an issue or a page or a bunch of pages and then dialoguing the art as it comes in, which was also, I loved. It, it was interesting, sometimes good surprising because you get back something and, and it's way more than you thought you had or it's a much better take. Sometimes not so good because, you know, you'd have put stuff in for five panels and you'd get a big headshot back and then you've got to work around that. But generally, I used to really like the Marvel US American way of working. And now comics is very much back to full script, which I like. But 
I, I, in some ways, I like the looseness of the Marvel style. So here we are again at To the Death, where I've gone back to that Marvel style. You know, the, the script I wrote, Jeff, like I said, was was almost like a very loose outline for a, a movie or a TV series rather than a comic book. And then only later did it become panels and pages. So, you know, it, it's it's changed, but it hasn't changed. You know, little circles and cycles, Mm. you know, it keeps coming back to it. But, you know, I think what's better now is that you have more access to the artists you're working with. So that collaboration is easier, more likely than it was back in the day sometimes. Yeah, because that that was something that I was really interested in as well, is in terms of the fact that, you know, you can send things digitally digitally now instead of by post um, and things or you going to an office physically and kind of looking at looking at the bristol boards and things um uh how how has that changed for you yeah i mean you know i you know i've worked both sides of the fence so i've been editorial um and i've been freelance and you know overall i prefer being freelance i like remote working i you know i I, I get more done. I've got more focus when I'm on my own in my own space. But that said, I really enjoyed, you know, the office environment and the team on a comic. So, you know, I like both versions of it. But, you know, I I think I'd, I'd always rather, you know, I've always rather been happier working from afar and, you know, you know, Jeff and I get together on a regular basis, but if we do, we'll do it in town for a, a drink and a catch up and a talk about how to the death's going or what our next thing will be. So, you know, I'd, I'd love I love doing the collaboration thing, but it's as easy these days to do it remotely by computer, by Skype, by email, however, than it you know than doing it in the same physical space. Although. I would say that sometimes being face to face, being in the same physical space does get stuff done a lot quicker and and mm. you get more sort of synergy and creative energy going when you're in that same space. Oh, absolutely. Um, because as, as somebody that's only created comics in the digital age, um yeah that that's all I've ever known so it'd be really interesting for me at some point to work with somebody kind of more in a in a uh, face-to-face capacity rather than just a, a kind of you know um email to email capacity yeah you know I mean it you know we all comics freelancers generally live fairly sort of solitary lives in our caves you know in front mm-hmm. of our boards or our laptops or whatever but, you know, we do try and keep a kind of a social side going, you know, to sort of drag people out and 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 sort of so we see each other face to face from time to time. Just because, you know, that was often, you know, back in the days of Marvel UK, the whole thing was a very, very social thing as well as a work thing. You know, people used to come down, stay, you know, around work in the offices sometimes you know i know in the sort of next phase of marvel uk the ones where paul neary was the editor-in-chief they literally had an art studio in the building and a lot of the artists like brian hitch and liam sharp were there 
in a studio setup, very much like Marvel US had been with the bullpen and things. Mm. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I do love that, the social side of it, and Marvel UK and Titan, very social as well. But I think creatively, you know, I work best in my own sort of space with minimal distractions. Yeah, certainly. Um, I think for the long term, it's kind of it's better for your creative vision, isn't it? That you're kind of in your own space and you yeah. need kind of you need the space to think and, you know, uh, write, essentially. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, now we come on to our final question, uh, and that is what weapon, tool, or useful item would you like to take into the apocalypse with you? Well, I think uh, I would probably take my laptop so I can just rewrite the ending the way I want it. In other words, I survive. <laughs> absolutely that's a stroke of genius simon fantastic well thank you so much for sharing your your comics for the apocalypse today well thanks very much for having me it's been uh fun and a, a, diff- a different kind of interview which is great oh fantastic uh, and one more time for the listeners uh where can they find you on the interwebs yeah uh you know you can find me on facebook and uh twitter you know i'm fairly sort of uh present there and uh you can check out To The Death and contact us on To The Death if you're interested at www.to-the-death.com. Fantastic. And again, those links are in the show notes. Um, and then apart from the uh, signing that's coming up at Forbidden Planet London on the 29th of February, uh, do you have any other cons or events going on? Yeah, I, you know, I we've had a fairly intensive with To The Death, you know, coming out over the last best part of a year we've had a fairly intensive convention and signing uh schedule so you know it's a little bit foot off the pedal for a while until it's not but Mm. we we will be doing i think both of us both jeff and i london film and comic con in the summer but no doubt there will be other conventions before then as well we're looking now at you know where we can take to the death next to the death is it's the 10th and final issue comes out at the beginning of April and in fact is out for the in time for the signing sorry beginning of March and is out for the signing so you know where we go next with to the death will probably dictate where we go with our conventions we're looking at the moment of not going to trade paperback for a while and instead slipcasing the issues and selling them mm. either full or empty with five issues per slipcase. So once we've got the slipcases together, there'll be another big push of conventions, I would imagine. Oh, excellent. And I'm sure people can, can find out when and where on Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I always flag up, you know, my, my timetable for conventions and signings fantastic uh well folks go follow simon on twitter um and uh yeah apart from that um thank you so much for your time today been a pleasure thanks very much thanks simon take care okay bye 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 thanks again to simon for being on comics for the apocalypse it was an absolute pleasure
If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review for us on iTunes or whichever podcast service you use, as not only will let me know that you liked it, but I believe that it helps make other people aware of the show as well. If you'd like to check out Simon's work or follow him on social media, those links are in the show notes, along with all of our own links to the various areas of the internet. Speaking of which, if you haven't already, be sure to visit Comic Scene Magazine's website at comicscene.org for comic news and lots of other fun sequential art stuff. And finally, as long as the apocalypse doesn't come to pass in the next week, I'll see you next Monday. Bye for now. 